Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you had a really bad day? Like, I'm not talking about an average bad day, I'm talking about a real shocker. You know, one of those days that you're going to remember for a long time because it was just so bad. I was with a guy last night. He said to me, yesterday morning, he said, I knew the day was going to go bad. He said, I got up at 8 o'clock, went to the gym, worked out. Oh, she has physio at the gym with a sports uh, thing because he'd done his knee in. But when he got out of the gym, he got to his car and the tyre was flat. It's like, ah. Oh. Not only that, he had people coming over last night. He had a christening today, so he had to do a load of baking for that. He had a really packed day. He didn't have time in his day for a car with a flat tyre. And these cars today, you can't just get the tyres off like you used to. They have all these special locking nuts, don't they? I didn't even know they existed until I had a flat tyre and then or a, tried, tried to find the locking nut and didn't know what it was. But apparently they have one of these locking nuts that kind of go in there and you can take the other nuts off, but you have to have a special one manufactured for your car just to get this one off. And he found that, he took it out, he put it on it and it just span round and round. Couldn't get it off. So he had to call the AA. AA came, half an hour later, they can't get it off either. So they have to tow his car to the garage so the garage mechanics can actually get his tyre off so that he can get his spare tyre on his car. And then after that there was just a catalogue of disaster after disaster for the whole day. He said it was a bad, bad day. I heard about a German uh, bank guy who was having a bad day. It was so bad he fell asleep. And he fell asleep at work, and that wasn't the bad thing was, because he fell asleep in the middle of doing a transaction, a financial transaction, to a pensioner. And he fell asleep with his finger on the keyboard. This pensioner was, uh, was actually, um, uh, not debited, what's the opposite? Credited, that's the word. Credited. 222 million euros uh, and then followed by 222, 222, 222 because he fell asleep with his finger on the 2 button unfortunately the banks figured what had happened and so you can imagine this pensioner having a bad day because he suddenly wakes up and finds he's got 222 million euros in his account only to find that the next day, when the bank found out exactly what had happened, that they debited 222 million out of his account before he could spend anything. And then send him an apology note. Goodness knows what happened to the bank official who fell asleep. Bad days. I was almost going to play you that song, but I couldn't bring myself to do it when I'm having a bad day. Paul is in Rome and he's having a bad day too. In fact, if we look at it in a physical sense, his whole life is in a bad way right now. He's been arrested, he's been shipped off to Rome, he's under house arrest. Now house arrest means that he's stuck in the four walls of his house. I don't imagine it was kind of some kind of penthouse. It was just a a little apartment or whatever room in Rome that he had to pay for and he was stuck there. And not only that, not only was it that he just couldn't leave, but he also had two uh, 
guards from the uh, Roman elite troops chained to him. So everywhere he went, there was a guard with him. When he wanted to have a bath, there would be two guys standing there watching his every move. If he wanted to go to the toilet, there was two guys there. He was literally shackled and chained to these two Roman guards. And he lived like that for two years in Rome. And you would have thought that if you were in that situation or I was in that situation, you would have thought, my goodness, it can't get much worse than this. I've got to pay for this. I'm waiting trial to go and stand before Caesar. And when I go there, it may well be that Caesar decides I'm guilty of treason and has me executed. And I'm just waiting on death row, effectively, to go and see Caesar and see what's going on. And whether I'm going to be freed or not. And not only that, I'm stuck with these two guys who change every few hours. At least they don't have to stay with me. But I'm stuck in my house with these two people. If that was you or that was me, I think we'd say it's a pretty bad deal, wouldn't we? That we're having a bad time. And yet in the middle of that, as we started to look at last week, Paul writes the letters of the New Testament. And he writes in particular the letter to the church in Philippi. A letter that is so full of joy and thanksgiving to God. It's just like, we, we question why, how could you do that? in the middle of those situations. How many of you, when you had a bad day, did you find yourself right in the middle of it starting to go, you know what, I'm going to start praising the Lord. This is fantastic, without the irony in my voice. But you know, saying, this is wonderful, Lord, I'm going to just praise you. Because I'm having such a bad day, it's gone from bad to worse, let's just start singing. Let's call up Ronnie and the band and say, let's put on, you know, Trinity's greatest and we're just going to start praising the Lord because it's going so bad today. No, you don't do that, do you? You do what I do and go like, can this day get any worse? Started like this, it went like this, it's gone like this. Oh my goodness. I heard about this guy actually. He was, this is a true story, he was cleaning his motorbike. And as the story goes, he was cleaning his motorbike, um, in his, in, his, uh, in his living room of all places because I think it was wet outside so he wheeled it into his living room cleaning his motorbike in his living room that's not a good idea anyway, the bike fell over and a load of petrol came out the tank all over the carpet and so he's mopping it all up with towels and like with, uh, with paper towel in and that Manages to clean it all up, gets the bike outside, he's really like exhausted by this time and he takes the paper towels, he flushes them down the toilet. When he, later on in the day, he goes into the toilet and while he's on the toilet he decides to have a cigarette. Bad idea. The toilet, not only does he decide to have a cigarette in there, when he's finished with his cigarette he puts it down the toilet, the toilet explodes, burns his backside, paramedics come. He's lying there, it's not funny this at all, like, this is true. Paramedics come, and because his house is like on a, on a hillside, they have to try and carry him up the stairs to get him out the front where the ambulance is. One of the paramedics, while he's stretched face down on this stretcher, slips on the stairs, the guy falls off the stretcher, 
breaking his leg in the process. That's a bad day when you know that's going on. Paul is there having a bad day. But out of it, he, as I said, he's not complaining, he's not moaning and groaning. He's writing the most joyous letter that we have in the New Testament, in the whole of the Bible. And we're going to read some of it again today because we need to understand how, how when everything is going terribly wrong in our lives, can we still be joyful? How, how does Paul do it? When he's chained to these guys, when he's there under house arrest facing what he's facing, that at any moment he's going to be called before Caesar and it may well be the end of his life. How can he write a note, a letter of so much joy back to the church in Philippi? Let's pray as we read together. Lord, we want to thank you for your word and as we look at it again today, we ask that you would speak to us. That your spirit would speak to our hearts and to the core of our being. Lord, help us to learn from you through your word, via your spirit. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, we continue at verse 12. How? Think about how. How can he be so positive? He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me his arrest and being under house arrest in Rome, and so on, has really served to advance the gospel. Now, let's stop there for a minute. You know, our situations that we find ourselves in is often forced upon us. So many times we don't have a choice. Sometimes we get there because of our own choices. But often we get into these situations... And it's not a choice, but when we're there, our attitudes in those situations always is our choice. How we respond to the situations that life gives to us are our choice. Nobody tells us what we have to do. We don't, you know, somebody doesn't say, no, you need to be really angry about this. You need to be really upset about this, or you need to be really happy. It's just our choice in how we're going to respond to the situations around us. Paul knew and learnt what it meant to be a Romans 8.28 kind of person. Do you know Romans 8.28? You'll know it when I read it. It says this, And we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, God works for the good. It's the same thing that he writes here in Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served the advance of the gospel. You see, his reaction is not, is not confined to the situation that he finds himself in. He has a bigger vision. You see, God, when we look at any situation, we know that all things work for the good for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that saying? It's saying that, God, you've got a bigger picture than I have. And I know that when I'm in a certain situation that is uncomfortable for me, I know because I can trust you that you have the bigger picture of what's going on. You can see it. Above the things that I can see. I can only see so much from my limited perspective, my limited vision. Think of it a bit like this. 
I grew up uh, in South London near Hampton Court. And so as a child, uh, we used to go to Hampton Court Palace all the time. Particularly on school trips, because it was nearby and it was, you know, so therefore it's cheap. So we used to get all bust into these coaches and everything and off to Hampton Court Palace. It's a beautiful place, Hampton Court Palace, if you've ever been. But the greatest thing about Hampton Court Palace... How many of you have ever been there? You ever been to Hampton Court? What's the best thing about Hampton Court Palace? The maze. Everybody knows about the maze in Hampton Court Palace. All these hedges up to here, and you're walking around. Now, before we went as school children, we were given a plan of the maze. In a book. It was fantastic. And I memorised that plan. I still have it pretty much in my head today. I know exactly how to get to the middle in Hampton Court Palace. Give or take a few years since I remembered it, but I pretty much know how you do it. So when I went there, I went in the gate and I was full of confidence. Why? Because I knew what I was doing. Now I made a couple of little wrong turns because it's different when you're down there than when you see it in a book, right? But I pretty much knew this is the way you've got to go. I could tell you even now. It's going there, that way, right round the outside and back into the middle. It's pretty much it. Right? Now I was in there, everybody else was walking up and down going, oh, dead end. Walking back this way, oh, dead end. Retrace your steps and then after about ten minutes you don't know where you are in the maze. It's the whole idea. And so, you know, if you were young you used to start pushing your way through the hedges, trying to get to the middle. Now they've got big metal rails in there, so you can't even do that anymore. And so you used to, like, but I would just walk in there and I went, right, you've got to go this way, second there, right this way, right round, 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 round. Kind of took the fun out of it, I'll give you that. Got to the middle, fantastic. Right, walk your way back out again, and I was out. Fantastic. It was brilliant. Now why? Because I knew the bigger picture. I had the bigger picture up here in my mind. I could see the whole thing in my head. And so I knew exactly where I had to go, which, when I needed to turn right or turn left. Because I had it. And that's how God sees us. And God is calling us to see or to trust Him in that. That God has the big picture. We don't. And so that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can say, I know God that all things work for good for those who love you. Because you have the bigger picture. And so you know what's going on. You know how it's all going to work out. And so Paul can say in Philippi, I want you to know brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Because God has the big picture and even though I don't like being here under house arrest and what's happening to me. I can trust that you are going to bring this out for the good. And part of why Paul had such a positive attitude was that he trusted in God for the big picture. And he knew that his situation made no difference. Just his attitude within it. That God could use Paul in any situation to bring about his work and that his plans, God's plans are never going to be thwarted that's the first thing, let's carry on reading verse 13 as a result it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ because of my chains most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously 
and fearlessly. The second thing Paul knows is that his ministry, the things that God has called him to do, has not changed. Our thinking may well be this. If we were there, we'd be going, Lord, now you have called me to be an apostle, to go out and to set up churches. That's what you've called me to do. You've called me to go and preach to the Gentiles. You've called me to go and build churches all over the place. And Lord, that's what I've done. I've done it in Philippi, I've done it in Thessalonica, I've done it in Colossae, I've done it all over the place. I've gone and built churches just as you've given me the gifts and the heart to do. And now here I am stuck in prison. What is the good of that? Lord, release me, get me out of here, so that I can carry on doing the work that you have called me to do. That's how we may think about it. But Paul thinks completely differently. He says, Lord, you have called on me to share the gospel. When I was in Philippi, I shared the gospel with the people there. When I was in Corinth, I shared it there. When I was in Ephesus, I shared it there. And even though I'm stuck here in prison, I'm going to share it here. Because that's what you've called me to do. I'm going to trust you for the situation. But I'm going to carry on the ministry that you have called me to do. The ministry, you see, never changes. And Paul is standing there, or is in his house, with these two guys attached to him by chains. And he's going, aha! I've got a captive audience. They're locked to me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Because they can't get away. Fantastic. It's like us locking the doors. You're not going out until I've finished. Right? You're there. You're stuck. So he starts telling them about Jesus. And I imagine at first they're like going, Oh, just shut up, Paul. Please. And then after a while, the Spirit of God starts working in their hearts. And before long, one or two of the Praetorian Guard of Caesar become believers. And not only that, Paul's going, you know the best thing about this? These guards change every few hours. So I get a fresh audience of another two. So I can talk to them. And then I can talk to the next group. And the next group. And I bet you after a while they'd all been scrambling to come back. I want to hear more about Paul. I want to, I want to be on that detail. I want to hear what Paul has to say. How can this guy... I've been chained to other guys before now and they're just moaning and groaning the whole day long. But there's something different about this guy. He's not moaning and groaning. He's telling me about someone else. He's telling me about his faith and a relationship in Jesus Christ. And Paul goes, you know what? The situation doesn't matter. My calling is the same. I'm going to carry on preaching about Jesus. Whether I'm out there and free or whether I'm in here in prison, I'm just going to keep on going because that is what God has called me to do. And he doesn't worry about the situation. And he doesn't question the calling that he has been given, the ministry that he's been given by God. He just says, how can I use it in this situation that I find myself in? And it's the same for you and me. What gifts has God given to you to use for his glory? And how are you using them? You know, situations doesn't make any difference. You have to come up and say, Lord, you've placed me here, so how can I use the gifts that you've given me? What opportunities are there that I can use these gifts? I was talking with some people this, this week 
And I think I might have said before, there was a, an elderly lady in the States. And she was sitting at home because she can't get out. She's housebound and she's going, Lord, how can I, you know, I just love to share you with other people and I don't know how to do it. I'm stuck at home. What can I do? And as she was praying, the Lord spoke to her and said, you know what, what gifts have I given you to, to use? And she said, well, I, I can play the piano. I love music. And so she put an ad in the local paper that says, if you would like to hear a hymn tune, phone this number. And people started phoning. Somebody phoned her up and said, I'd love to hear this tune because this tune was played at my wedding. And my husband's died and I'd just love to hear it one more time. And she'd stick the phone on top of her piano and she'd start playing. And then somebody else phoned up and said, you know what, this, this tune means such a lot to me. Can you play this hymn song? Or this worship song. And she would play it. And for two, three hours a day, she would have this phone in where people would phone her and she would play. And do you know what started happening? People started talking, not only just asking for songs. They said, you know, let me tell you a story about why I want this song. And she started then to be able to minister and share Jesus Christ with people down the telephone line, even though she was stuck in her own home. Because she knew that her calling hadn't changed. The ministry to which God had called her was the same. She just found a new way of expressing it in the situation she found herself in. Paul recognises the same thing. But it still gives us the question, but how? How how could he be so joyful in those situations? In the situation Paul found himself in? Let's carry on reading. Because I think here it gives us some indications of how. Verse 15, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So you get the picture, Paul's saying that there are some people out there, they're using preaching to cause him grief. They're using the pulpit to, to, to promote their own agenda, to criticise Paul, saying, look, look, he couldn't have been following God, because now he's under arrest, he's in prison, look, look what's happening to him, God's punishing him. Don't follow Paul, don't follow his teachings. Whereas others are just staying true to the gospel. Paul is saying, now what do you think Paul would be saying to those two groups? To the one, true to the gospel, fantastic. To the other one, stop what you're doing. How can you do that? Don't do that. Don't preach Christ with selfish ambition, with false, with false things in your heart. But that's not what he says. Look what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice Paul is saying know your priority for Paul the priority is that Christ is preached that is number one in his life he's going to preach Christ whether he's chained to God's whether there's nobody around, in which case he's going to pen letters he's going to preach Christ if he's free going around the wherever And he's going to encourage everybody else to preach Christ too. 
And he says, I don't care whether they're preaching it out of a bad attitude or a good attitude. I care that Christ is being preached. Why? Because God is bigger than any of that. I know people who have become believers from, from uh, some of the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the big churches in the States. Some of those guys that, you know, with their big empires and everything else that are doing it. Well, I don't want to judge them. But you sometimes question their real motivation. Buy this handkerchief that I blessed and this, this and this. And you think like, whoa, is that really what the gospel is all about? And yet some people tune in and listen to that and they become believers because God says, you know what, I can use even them, I can use anybody to become to know Jesus Christ. They don't necessarily then follow the same teaching afterwards. They join local churches and so on. But God can use anything because he's so much bigger than we are. And Paul recognised that. And he says, my priority is this, that Christ is preached. And that's all that matters. There's a cathedral in Milan and it has three main arches or three main entranceways, triple doorway. And over one of the doorways, over the left-hand doorway, I think it is, there is a beautiful wreath of roses. And underneath is written, all that which pleases is but for a moment. And then on the other side, there is another picture, and there is a sculptured cross. And under that are the words, all that which troubles us is but for a moment. And then under the middle arch or middle doorway, there's no picture, no sculpture, but these words. That only is important, which is eternal. Pleasurable things pass by. Next year, Arsenal. FA Cup, who knows? Some other team and some other place may well be celebrating. It's temporary. Troubles, same kind of thing. Often they're temporary. They come and they go. We have good days and bad days. But eternal things, those are the things that are important. And God has placed each one of us with a unique set of gifting and abilities to perform an eternal role for him. We need to know what that priority is. He carries on, verse 18b, Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul is saying here, know just not what your priority is, but know who you believe in. Belief comes through experiences. Trust comes through experiences. I've been married for several years. I won't even, if I get it wrong, no, let me just leave it as several. I trust Enika. Why? She trusts me. Why? Because we've been through so much together. And when you go through different things together, that's what builds the trust. It's because you've been together in different situations, different scenarios. We started off together in Africa. We've lived here together. We've lived in Canada together. And now back here together. We've been through times of real hardship together. She's seen me when I've been my most miserable. And somehow God's given her the grace to still love me. She's seen me when I've been most joyful. And she still loves me. She's seen me when I've just been really angry. Or really happy. Or really contented or or really discontented. She's seen me in every different aspect of life. And not only that, she's seen me and we've been together when we've done different things together. We've done all kinds of things together. And through doing all those different experiences, that builds the trust and the relationship with someone else. We don't just go out and do the same things over and over again. We do new things, new experiences, because they build new memories, new trusts with one another. And it's like that in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul knows Jesus. may sound a bit ridiculous, but he knows him. Why? Because Jesus has been there through all the experiences that has led up to this point. He was there on the Damascus Road when he first met Jesus. But he was there when he was thrown out of that city. When he was let down in a basket out of that city. When he preached in that city. When the guy fell out of the window in that city and he went down and he touched him and he healed him and he raised him back to life again. He was there when Paul ministered his hands upon people and they became well. He was there when Paul baptised. He was there all through all these different situations, through stonings, through shipwrecks, through seeing people come to know Jesus Christ for the first time. Because he, God used Paul to speak to others. He's been there and because of that whole history of relationship, Paul knows at this time that he can rely on that relationship. One of the problems, I think, in the church in the West versus the church elsewhere is that we tend so much to make our lives safe. Safe in our lives, but safe in our spiritual lives. You want to know the excitement about knowing who Jesus is? You get out to somewhere where it's not safe. You try something new with Christ. You put, in a sense, you put God to the test. I know it says don't, but in this sense it's good. You go out there and you say, Lord, I'm going beyond myself. So you need to catch me. You need to do this. 
You need to help me in this. Because I don't know what I'm doing. And when you go out to those places, when you go and try it for the first time, you go into the streets of Harrow and you go, you know what, I'm going to tell somebody about the love of Jesus. I've never done it before in my life and it scares me and I'm shaking and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to trust you, Lord, to give me the words to say. And you go and do it. That's what builds faith. That's the kind of thing that builds that relationship. So that when you go through harder times, you have a whole history and a whole legacy of relationship with Jesus where you know that he's never let you down, he's never forsaken you, he's never abandoned you, he's always been there for you during all of that. And that's the situation we find Paul in. So what does he pray for? He says, you know what, I believe in the power of prayer. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He says, I don't know what that deliverance is. It may be that I die. It may be that I come back to you. I don't know. But I'm not worried about it. Why? Because you're praying for me and God answers prayers. And the Spirit of God is helping me. And so I know that everything's going to be fine. It's all going to work out in accordance with God's plans. So I've got nothing to worry about. He said, God really is on my side. God is going to deliver me. He's looking after me. He's caring for me. He's going to do what God does. So, verse 20, I eagerly, sorry, verse 19. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope, verse 20, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So he said, God is on my side, so I've got nothing to be ashamed about. And I know that God's Spirit is going to give me the courage that I need to face whatever comes. So I don't need to worry, do I? I can be joyful. Because I know that he's in control. And that everything is going to work out. All things work for good. It's going to be a blessing. To God and to his people. And so I've got nothing to fear. Nothing to worry about. Verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labors. Why? Because God will continue to flow through me. God will continue to pour out his blessing in my life, but through my life to others. Why? Because the power of God is at work. The power of God and the plans of God are going to happen. And Paul says, know what you believe in. You know those little bonsai trees that you can get from Japan? Do you know how they make them? They're normal trees apparently, I didn't know this. But what they do is once the seed just starts to get above the, the, uh, the soil, they take the plant out and they tie off the main root and some of the other roots. And so it, it effectively stops all the nutrients getting in to the main trunk. And so it kind of stunts the growth. That's why you get a perfect little tree instead of a perfect big tree. And sometimes we're like that. By the choices we make, we, we kind of stunt our own growth. God says, I've got massive plans for you guys. But we go, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm, I'm going to... I don't, I, I'm not sure I can handle that amount of your spirit flowing through, that energy flowing into me. I'm going to start 
tying bits off, keep them safe, keep them small, keep them nice. And we stop it from happening. Paul didn't do that. He said, you know what, this is God's business. Let me just open myself up to him and trust him. Because I know who I believe in. And the last thing is this, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. Paul says, know what your goals are. You know what your goals should be? He said to the church in Philippi, that you should conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Verse 27. That's what your goals should be. You know your priority, but how are you going to reach that priority? Well, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And how are you going to do that? He says, stand firm. Be united together. Contend as one for the faith of the gospel. Get in there. Get stuck in. Go do it. Be confident, he says, without being frightened. Verse 28. Do those things and you will reach the goals that Christ has set for you. Know what your goals are and how you're going to reach them. I heard about a guy that went into a school and they have that game called Balloon Stomp. Do you know that one? Balloon Stomp is where you get, all the, you get everybody... I almost brought balloons today to try it out. But you get everybody to tie a balloon around your ankle. One balloon. And then you set everybody, you tell them to go. And what you have to do is you have to burst everybody else's balloon, but keep yours inflated. And the last person to have their balloon still inflated is the winner. So this guy did it in this classroom of children. Tied balloons on. Health and safety doesn't allow it this, uh, these days, but anyway. And then they all went crazy, stomping around. And do you know the guy that won? Was the class bully. He was bigger than the rest, so he just pushed other people out of the way. He pushed them, he shoved them, and he got them, and he grabbed them, and he stomped on their balloon, and he was the guy that won. And everybody else didn't really like the guy, but he won. The same teacher went into a classroom full of children with learning difficulties. And he said, you know what, we're going to play balloon stomp. And he explained exactly the same rules. Do you know what happened? When he said, right, go, the children paired up with one another. And one of them knelt down and held the balloon while the other one stomped on it. And then the other one got down and held their balloon and allowed the person with the broken balloon to stomp on theirs. And at the end, nobody had a balloon left. And they all cheered for each other. That's what happens when you set different goals. It's the same playing field. It's the same game. But they interpreted it differently. Let me ask you these questions as we close. You want a joy-filled life? 
then honestly ask yourself this. What is your one priority above all others in your life? What is at the very core of who you are that everything else revolves around? There will be one thing that is there. The core of what makes you, you. Everything else will circle around it. But what is that one priority in your life? For Paul, it was the advancement of the gospel. He said, that's my priority. I'm going to do that everywhere I go, anywhere I go. That's what I'm going to do. What is it for you? Second thing is, how have you been growing in your relationship with Jesus? Forget about the circumstances you find yourself in, but how are you growing through those experiences with Jesus? We grow through reading the Bible, through prayer, through fellowship, through all these other ways. But one of the best ways to grow, one of the ways that we have to make sure we include, are putting ourselves in those positions where we just trust him. Where we fall on him, where we jump out of the tree and say, Jesus, catch me. Because then, when we come to other situations, we can think back and remember when he called us. Remember when he's been with us. Remember that when I didn't know what to say, he gave me the words to say. When I didn't know what to do, he told me what to do. Remember when we saw the power of God working through us to touch others. How are you growing in your relationship with him? And lastly, what are your goals? What is it? How are you going to achieve that priority in your life? For Paul, he said, I'm going to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I'm going to encourage other people to do that too. What about you? And what about me? Let me close with this. The first billionaire, apparently they've just done the Times Rich list again. The uh, top 10% in the UK are 15% better off than they were a year ago. Just been published. But the first billionaire was a man who knew how to set goals. At the age of 23, he'd made his first million. By the age of 50, he'd become a billionaire, the first one in the history of the world. Because every decision, every attitude, every relationship was tailored to making money, to personal power and to wealth. He didn't do anything that wouldn't make him money, that wouldn't help to get him to his goal, his priority of making a billion. That was his number one priority. And so all his goals, everything around him, his relationships, were built on that objective. And by the age of 50... He was a billionaire. That's Wednesday. You know what? When he got to 53, he fell really seriously ill. His body became racked with pain. He lost all the hair on his head. That was me a few years ago. He was in complete agony. The, only, the world's only billionaire. He could buy anything he wanted. But all he could exist on was milk and crackers. He could eat nothing else. An associate wrote, he could not sleep, he would not smile, and nothing in life meant anything to him. 
He had his own set of personal, highly skilled physicians. And they predicted when he was 53 that he would only live one more year and then he'd be dead. He said that year passed agonizingly slow. And as he approached his death, he awoke one morning with a vague remembrance of a dream. He could barely recall the dream, but he knew it had something to do with not being able to take any of his successes with him into the next world. The man who could control the business world suddenly realized that he was not in control of his own life and he was left with his choice. You know what he did? He called all his attorneys, his accountants, his managers and he announced that he wanted to give all that money away. He spent his whole life collecting it. But he said, I want to channel it into hospitals, into research and into mission work. The guy's name was John D. Rockefeller. And the Rockefeller Foundation, since 1900, there's been 21 Nobel Prize winners. Amazing discoveries that have come out of it. Because that guy suddenly realised at the end of his life that his priority was wrong, that his relationships were wrong, and that his goals were wrong. And he sought to put them right. What about you and what about me? Because Paul says if you want joy in abundance, it comes from right priorities, right relationship and right goals. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us everything we need for joyous lives, regardless of circumstance. And yet so often we're up and down. Something goes wrong in our lives, we have a bad day and we're all moody and the world's falling apart. When we should be consistently full of joy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. You give us your joy. And Jesus, we see that in you. Your life was one of struggle. Those three years of ministry... You had opposition. You had your disciples not understanding who you were. You had so many things going against you. And then finally, your trial and your arrest and your betrayal and the crucifixion. And yet, through it all, you demonstrated that joy because you knew that your priority was right, that your relationship with the Father was right, and that you had accomplished it. It is finished. You'd accomplished the goals that your Father had set for you. Lord, help us to be clear in our lives about why you have placed us here, about our relationship with you may continue to grow and grow and grow, and about the goals that you want us to accomplish, the goals that you give to each one of us. Because it's as we understand them and work towards them that we will truly demonstrate and have an increasing abundance of your joy that flows out of us to others. We thank you for Paul and for his letters. Thank you that you in a sense locked him away so he could write most of the New Testament. 
Because otherwise he was so busy travelling around. And we wouldn't have your word as we have it today. I thank you that you are in control. Speak to us continually, we pray. In the name of Christ. Amen.